Well, how many of you were here last year for Summerfest when I was here? Did you check these branches over my head? Do you remember that? I just thought of that this morning. And then I realized where this was and I'm wanting to make sure that tree is sound. That was scary last year being here. But it's good to be back. And I trust that the branches will uh, maintain themselves. Thank you so much. It's an exciting time to be a part of this church. You ought to be very, very hopeful and excited about the next chapter. I'm so glad to see what God is doing with your building. And I know a building seems like it's not important when we think of our theology. And in reality, it's not when it comes to things like what we're going to talk about tonight. But what a great thing God is going to do. I'm confident when God gets you moved into that building and all that's going on there. And I'm sure there are a lot of headaches, things I probably, some of you are saying, I wish he wouldn't bring that up. What a great thing. Those are going to be in the rearview mirror and God's going to do some great things, I'm quite sure. So I'm excited for you and we're excited for you, those of us that are familiar with this church down in Orange County. And I'm certainly glad to be here. And I certainly bring you greetings from Compass Bible Church. And we're excited about the future for you guys. But tonight... My job is to talk about faith. And to do that, I want to start by asking you a question. I want you to think about the best person you can think of. The best person you can think of. And Jesus doesn't count in this little exercise, so don't think of him. But I want you to think of the most caring person, the most sacrificial person, the kindest person. The person that would go out of their way, stay the extra hour, spend the extra dollar if it was needed, go the extra mile. The nicest, the kindest, the most godly person that you can think of. Got that person? I assume you're not thinking of yourself right now, am I right? Not thinking of you. You're thinking of somebody else. Maybe someone in the past you've read about, maybe some Sunday school teacher you knew as a kid, maybe it's your grandmother, a relative. You got that person in mind? Great. Here's my next question for you. How much saving does that person need from God? How much saving does God need to give that person so that they, on the day that they die or when they died and stand before God, God would say, hey, come on in. When that person died or will die and stand before God, I want you to think about God's emotional reaction to that person showing up. Think about that. So God is there. Let's just imagine this. We don't have any details on it in the Bible, but here are the entrance gates to God's kingdom. And God sees that person you just thought about standing before him. What are his feelings? Is he impressed? Does he feel a sense of admiration? Does he think, well, here is a good and godly person standing before me? And if you were to ask then a question that is often asked, why should God let that person into his eternal kingdom? I, I wonder what your answer would be. I know what your co-worker's answer would be. I know what your non-Christian relative answers, uh, relative's answer would be. I, I certainly know people that you live you know, in and around, that you, you bank with, the people that you, you know, play sports with. They would say this. They would say because they're, they're good. Matter of fact, that's what they're banking on, is it not? I'm going to die, and God's going to embrace and, and accept and say, welcome into this kingdom because um, I'm not all that bad. And you sitting here might, at least in your gut, feel some sympathy for that when you think of that person that I just had you think of. 
That person, if anyone's going to impress God, that person would impress God. But if you're well-read, and I know most of you are, and you're well-taught here at this church, you can say, well, yeah, but I know that, that can't be. I've got to fight my gut instinct, and I've got to say, that's not the way it works. I know the rules of salvation. I mean, we're talking about it. We print t-shirts about it. I mean, it's about the rules of people are sinful, and they need God's assistance. So, you know, all have sinned. I learned that. Our kids are learning that. And so they need some help. And I guess that's what I'm asking. How much help does that person need? How much assistance do they need? See, because most of us, even Christians and many churches would say, well, Christ is there to help your deficiencies. I mean, if it's like a ride at Disneyland or Knott's Berry Farm, it's like, you know, you gotta be this tall to ride. I mean, it's like there's a standard there. And the standard, I suppose, is is the perfect life of Christ. Now, here comes that person you thought of, and now they have died. They now are standing before God in the afterlife. And here's, you gotta be this tall to enter. So here they walk up, and, and I guess what we're hoping for is that, that Christ will give them a, a little boost. I mean, I guess they need that because they're sinners. They need a little help. I mean, you got to be picked up, I know, and kind of crest over the top of that, that, that standard. But they just maybe some, some divine platform shoes, you know, just a little boost. If they just had a little bit of help from God, they, they would qualify. Well, before... Jesus Christ came. If you asked people in the first century BC, the second century BC, the third century BC, who is the most righteous person you can think of? I mean, there would be a pretty universal answer among Jewish people. They would say, I know who that is. That is the person, Abraham. Here's some of the things that were written about him between the Testaments. Uh, Here's one. Uh, Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds. He was well-pleasing in righteousness. Here's another commentary, one line. No one has been found like Abraham in his glory. He always kept the law. Here's one about repentance. It's a section about repentance. Then in the middle of this discussion about repentance, this Jewish writer says, well, repentance wasn't necessary for Abraham. Repentance was given to us from God as an instruction for us, but not for guys like Abraham. And if you want to really think through in your gut the way that we, I think, naturally want to think, that person you thought of, that is the best person you could possibly think of, you'd have to recognize that in our hearts, we kind of naturally default to that thought of, yeah, I mean, if anyone needs no help or just a little help, it would be that godly person. Well, Paul knew that everyone on the street in Rome who knew the Bible and those Jews who had transplanted to the city of Rome, he knew that they thought that Abraham was the best, the greatest, the most righteous person. And if God was going to help people qualify for heaven, Abraham wouldn't need all that much help, if any at all. And many said, none at all, because he's righteous in all of his ways. He didn't even need to repent of anything. Well, that brings us to the passage we're here to talk about. Romans chapter four, I'd love for you to call this up. If you've brought a Bible, open it up and let's look at these eight verses and see how Paul just blows their mind with this simple comparison about all the things that had been said about you and I in the first three chapters of Romans. And if you know anything about the Bible, it ends in chapter three with that, that crescendo into all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? 323. If you don't know many verses, you probably know that one. Well, after all of that, then he introduces Abraham. He says this, note Romans chapter four, verse one. 
well, if all, all, all are sinners, I mean, if that's the way it is, then what are we going to say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? I mean, he obviously had some clout with God. I mean, his resume was sterling. And I mean, according to the way he lived when he was here in the flesh, I mean, yeah, I mean, surely he's doing well. Well, Paul says, verse 2, if Abraham was justified, if he measured up, if he was qualified for heaven by his deeds, by his works, then he had something to boast about, but not before God. He may boast when he compares his righteousness to yours, but he can't boast before God. What does the scripture say? When it comes to him qualifying, here's what it says. Abraham believed God and it was counted, credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, well, his wages are counted as a gift. They're credited to him, as a, not, not as a gift, rather, but as his due. That's what's owed him. You go to work, you get that direct deposit into your account. You don't send a thank you note to your boss. You worked for those hours. You get that in your, in your account, and, and it's, it's his due. But to the one who does not work, to the one who can't work when it comes to God's standard, but believes in him who justifies, who qualifies the ungodly, well, then his faith is counted, credited, considered before God as righteousness. Now, that's what we really need. We need to measure up. Well, how do we measure up? According to this, you trust, you believe, you say, I think that God will do this for me, and God says you're righteous enough. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom, here's our word again, he, he counts or considers or credits righteousness apart from the things that you do. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds, he's quoting now the song of David in Psalm 32, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, they're expunged, whose sins are covered, can't see them anymore. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not, there's our word again, count, credit his sin. So somehow sin's got to be not credited in my account. There's the debt. And somehow I need righteousness credited. And in this passage, it's not about Abraham's righteousness. It's not about Abraham's credit. It's about this thing that's so important that we're here to talk about tonight, translated here in this passage, believe. There's only one word in the Bible that we translate faith. That word faith is the same word here. Sometimes it's translated belief. It's the same word to believe or to trust, to put our faith in God that he would somehow solve the problem, certainly from Abraham's perspective. And post Christ's coming, looking back at the specific person, Jesus, who was the one who qualifies us before God. The Bible says that this is the mechanism. It's an exchange. It's something completely different than what most people on the street would assume, even church-going people or synagogue-going people that said, well, Abraham, super righteous, and Paul just blows that argument. He says, that's not, it's not how it works. The rules of salvation aren't God is sending Christ to help us, but God sent Christ to accomplish something we couldn't accomplish, and then to credit, to account, to consider, to say your righteousness, well, we're gonna slide that aside. Here comes Christ's righteousness, your sin, let's credit that to the cross of Christ, we'll pay for that debt, a complete exchange. This is mind-blowing because in a way, Paul is simply saying the best that you know cannot earn their salvation. That's what's going on in this passage and that's hard for us. And you know why it's hard? Because just like the people that wrote between the Testaments and said, Abraham doesn't need to repent. We need to repent. And they said that because Abraham is so much better than we are. And that's the world we live in. 
Oh, I know you pray to God. I know you read his word, but you haven't been hanging out with the perfect triune God. I mean, you're not in his presence. Angels have to shield their face before him. I mean, we really spend most of our time here, obviously, even in our thinking and conversation, dealing with other sinners. And so we start to feel okay about ourselves because I know a lot of people that are worse than me. It's what I call these lateral comparisons we get so accustomed to that when we meet someone that's really good, we think, well, God must be thinking they're acceptable or almost acceptable. But here is a passage that says the greatest person you can think of doesn't qualify. He needs to exchange everything in his life for something that Jesus did. Skunks. I often think about skunks I think about them because we have some that live uh, not, you know, they, they have a corridor. Apparently they run through the back of my house and every now and then we smell them. And I think to myself, do skunks think they stink? And when they hang out together, do they ever say, Ted, that skunk really stinks? I wonder, you know, do they ever you know, feel like that guy? No, I, I think to myself, probably not, but let's just say they do just for comical relief here that they say, Ted really needs to do something about his odorous smell because he's really smelly. Uh, there's that sense of comparison that we all do. We w we'll watch the news. We'll read the, you know, the, the blogs about all these heinous crimes in our, in our country or in our world, and we will start to feel, relatively speaking, we're certainly not like that. And those lateral comparisons, unfortunately, just they ruin our sense of what it means to trust in Christ by faith alone to be credited the righteousness we need to be right before God. It'd be like me saying, hey, we're going to swim to Hawaii. What's that, 2,400 miles from the coast? And you're what, about 100 miles as the crow flies? If I said, here's the thing, we have to all get to Hawaii or we all die. You have 24 hours and you can't use any other mechanism to get there. You got to walk, run, jog, swim. That's it. And I may look around at this crowd and I see some of you uh, probably do a lot better than I would. But when it comes down to it, if the standard is, is perfection, the reality of my life is I don't care how many I can pass, I, I can't get there and neither can you. But even that analogy that's used so often that we can go further than someone else, but we can never get to this infinitely high picture of righteousness sometimes makes us think, well, God takes care of the deficit. But that's certainly not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't say that what we need is Christ to make up what lacks in our righteousness. The Bible always has this sense of exchange. And here's why. Because when you and I sin, here's how it's put in James chapter 2. When we sin in any way, we become a lawbreaker. And here's the problem. Lawbreakers can't have fellowship with the holy God. Therefore, it's like a, a, a windshield. We were driving up here this afternoon and we saw a uh, truck that had all these windshields. And my wife and I had made a co couple comments about that. We thought about windshields that had been broken. And I thought to myself, you know, when guys deliver those windshields to be replaced in cars that have, you know, a, a windshield that needs replacement, some of those windshields, I'm sure, look horrifically terrible, right? I mean, just the whole thing is just shattered. Others, it's just, it's a small section of the windshield, but either way, they need a new windshield. It needs to be replaced because saying, well, that windshield's only broken on the driver's side, but that windshield's broken all the way. It doesn't matter. When it comes down to it, the Bible says, when you and I have a broken law in our past, we instantly become before a holy God, unacceptable. If you and I were quality control inspectors at the factory, 
and those people that put those windshields on that truck and they were headed to whatever distribution or retail center was going to sell them and install them, if you and I had to check those windshields before they left the factory, it wouldn't matter how badly they were flawed. If they were flawed, they failed. And that's what the Bible says about everyone, including Abraham. Abraham may be a lot better than you and the person you thought of at the beginning of this message may be way better than you. But the problem is if we're sinners, that righteousness needs to be replaced because it's flawed. You have to think in terms of the totality of a person's resume before God and what they need is a new resume, not something else added to their resume. And that's the difference between most people's belief about religion and our belief regarding the gospel because this is the way it's presented to us. The most righteous person we know can't earn it. Well, you've said no Latin words yet and everyone's wearing shirts about sola, whatever. What is this all about? How does this relate? I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about it. 2000, let me give you church history in, in, in a minute. Ready? Here, here it goes. 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes on the scene to fulfill all of the promises of the Old Testament regarding a sacrificial lamb that will take the replacement, the substitution of my life. My sin on him, his righteousness on me, he comes to do that. He proclaims that, the apostles proclaim it, and, and we, have, we have the church. 2,000 years ago, the message of the gospel with clarity about the focus of who accomplishes this for us, Jesus Christ, and we're off to a great start. In uh, the fourth century, a uh, Roman emperor becomes a Christian, Constantine. He's in charge of, you know, the, 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 the whole empire. And of course, in his conversion to Christ that some people think was, you know, half-hearted or spurious, but let's just forget that. Nevertheless, he's committing himself to be a Christ follower. He now takes Christianity and says it's no longer an outlawed religion. And we begin to see in the fourth century emerging of the power and authority of the state, the government, and the message of the gospel and theology in the church. And those two, they kiss each other in the fourth century. And now, from the fifth century to the 12th century, lots of debates about a lot of things. But ultimately, if I had to put it in a, in a phrase, it would be there was a consolidation of power in the church. In that, just like the government makes up rules and tells you what you can and cannot do, you're going to build something, you're going to produce something, you're going to, whatever it is, drive down the road. They can make up the rules to tell you how to live and what to do and what the penalties will be. That governmental authority was now merged with the theology of the church. And for about, I don't know, 800 years, we had this mixing of thoughts, in a nutshell, of the church now feeling like we have the right to tell you what is and what isn't because the church and state had been merged together in a really unholy alliance, if I can say that, to where finally you had people like John Huss, John Wycliffe, the Waldenes and their the, uh, uh, Desinians and their quest to say something's wrong here. You're starting to say things the Bible didn't say. You're starting to take an authority to yourself that you were never intended to take. And therefore you're starting to add to the gospel. You're starting to undermine the gospel. And all of these people said, we've got a real problem here with the church. And it wasn't until 500 years ago that we had the beginning of a breach in that authority through Martin Luther in 1517, putting that display there on the door of the Wittenberg church, which was, hey, we got to talk about these things. I got a problem here, which all related to, in essence, what the church was saying people had to do to get right with God. 
And that started the Reformation. That's at least what they wanted it to be. Let's reform the church. Let's fix the church. But of course, it really didn't reform or fix the church. As a matter of fact, it became a schism. It became a split. You had people that said, well, we protest against what the church and state combination had come up with regarding how to get right with God. And we're going to go back to what the Bible says. That was the first sola. Now, sola scriptura. We're going to go back to that because we don't trust the government slash church to tell us what it is to get right with God. And in that split, you started now to have a kind of clarity about what it was to get right with God. And the church said, well, you made a few points there, but we're going to, this is now called the Counter-Reformation. In the 1540s, we started a council called the Council of Trent. And at the Council of Trent, they said, listen, you guys say that we're doing it all wrong. We're not doing it all wrong because we do have authority to tell you what is and what isn't. And in the Counter-Reformation, in, in the mid-16th century, they made it very clear that what Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all the rest of the reformers were saying, they're saying, you guys are wrong. You guys are wrong. Well, you had the birth of the Protestant church that continued to grow because when the printing press and the scripture started to get translated into the, the, the language of the people, they started saying, well, this is what the Bible says. And if this is the word of God, what the church is telling me is wrong about how to get right with God. And therefore I'm going to go with the Bible. And that's why we sit here today, your church, my church as a non-Catholic church, because we said, this is a different take on how to get right with God. In 1994, the Roman Catholic Church doubled down on everything that was said about what was wrong with the reformers and basically said, here's our most and latest official doctrinal statement regarding what we think it takes to get right with God and how the church should work. It's called the Catechism of the Catholic Church, published in 1994. The Pope signed off on it and they said, this is what the Catholic Church believes and this is what you need to believe about how to get right with God. Well, before we look at the rest of this passage real briefly. Let me read from you, read for you from this, this book, this authoritative condensation of the theology and it's several hundred pages of what it is to get right with God. And let's start first of all about who can tell you what's right, how to get right with God. Okay, three things. I'm quoting now from section 95. There are three things the Roman Catholic Church says, and we would, Scott and I, as leaders of Protestant Church, completely disagree with, there are three things that are connected that cannot be separated. Here they are. Sacred tradition, that means what the church has done. The Holy Scriptures, that's the book that we study. And the magisterium of the church. Magisterium comes from the word from the master's office. The things that they have officially taught. So what the church has done what the Bible says, and what the church has decided and officially, authoritatively said. Those are the three things, and listen how they say it. They are so connected and associated with one another that one of them cannot stand without the others. This is not the Council of Trent in the 16th century. This is 1994. It's what every good priest and every good Catholic church is going to look to as their authority, and that's clarifying the fact that the church, what, the, what it's done, the church, what it teaches officially, and the Bible, all three are like three legs on a tripod. You take one out, it all collapse. Therefore, you cannot have the scripture alone. You've got to listen to what the church officially teaches. You've got to look at what the church has done, and then you can read the Bible too. We'll get all those together. We'll mix it up, and we'll create a cake called theology. 
How do you get right with God? Section 1250 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Children need to have the new birth. That sounds like a biblical phrase. The new birth in baptism. Baptism. To be freed from the power of darkness and to be brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God. The grace of salvation, which you're going to talk about this summer, the grace of salvation is particularly manifest. It's seen, it's made evident in infant baptism. The church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism on a child shortly after his birth. Was that clear enough for you and I? How do I become a child of God? How do I receive the grace of salvation? Baptism. 15 sections later, 1265. Baptism the Roman Catholic Church officially teaches, not only purifies me from all sin, it also makes the new convert a new creature, quote unquote, as an adopted son of God and a partaker of the divine nature and a member of Christ and a co-heir with Christ and a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you ask, how do you get right with the living God and have all these phrases qualify in your, your, in your case? A temple of the spirit, co-heir with Christ, a member of Christ, a partaker of the divine nature, adopted by God. The answer is you have to be baptized. Now the Catholic church has said in the Catholic catechism that there are some exceptions to a priest doing it, but it must be the most extreme situation. It has to be done according to the dictates of the Catholic church. And if you get baptized, you get the grace of salvation. You become a child of God. Well, now that my sin is forgiven, I want to make sure I stay saved. Section 1392, it's called the Eucharist, the meal of Thanksgiving. You call it the Lord's Supper. They call it a re-sacrificing of the body of Christ. It says this, what material food produces in our bodily life? You had pizza tonight. It keeps you, keeps you alive, as, as crazy as that thought is, for, for another day. What food produces in your bodily life, holy communion, the Eucharist, wonderfully achieves that in your spiritual life. Communion with the flesh of the risen Christ, because that's what you're taking, is a life-giving it is a life that is given and a life-giving element through the Holy Spirit. It preserves you. It increases and renews the life of grace that you received at baptism. This growth in the Christian life needs the nourishment of the Eucharistic communion. So now the church is saying officially to, get, uh, to become a child of God, the Catholic Church needs to baptize you. To now be kept in God, you need the Eucharist. Keep taking the flesh of Christ re-sacrificed in the mass and you will continue in that grace of salvation. What happens if I really sin? Well, you need another sacrament. A sacrament is one of the seven ways that this, the grace of God gets dispensed into your life. And the next one you need is the sacrament of penance. Through the sacrament of penance, you will, well, oh, oh, let me start with this. I'm sorry, 1420, through the sacrament of the Christian initiation, baptism, a man receives new life in Christ. So I get saved when I get baptized. This new life as a child of God can be weakened or even lost by sin. So if you sin, you can lose that grace of salvation. Section 1422, but those who approach the sacrament of penance, right? You, you confess your sins, you obtain pardon and God's mercy for the offenses that you've committed against him. And at the same time, you're, same time, you're reconciled with the church. As a sinner makes amends for his sins, 
especially his repayment or reparation to God for the offenses that he's committed, the penance given by the confessor, the priest, in the sacrament of penance, it constitutes a satisfaction or a cleansing of your sins. Penance is also called the sacrament of confession, 1424 says, since the disclosure or the confession of your sins to a priest is an essential element of this sacrifice, it's called the sacrament of forgiveness, since by the priest's sacramental ablution, uh, absolution rather, of God, he grants you pardon and he grants you peace. So I get saved by being baptized. I keep my salvation grace by taking the Eucharist. If I sin bad, I got to go and confess it. And the priest then is given the authority to restore the grace of salvation because of my confession to him. 1441, only God forgives sins. I'm with you now. Since he is the son of God and Jesus says himself, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins and exercises this divine power. That's sounding like good Protestants now. And, and then he says, but furthermore, by the virtue of his divine authority, he gives that power to men to exercise in his name. The priests now have the authority to have you confess and you be forgiven. Christ instituted, 1446, the sacrament of penance for all sinful members of his church. Above all, those who since baptism have fallen into grave sin and have lost their baptismal grace, which made me a child of God. It is to them that the sacrament of penance offers a new possibility to convert and recover the grace of justification. Now, if I confess it and I'm told to do some things, some Hail Marys or good works, I now can have my justification restored to me. The fathers of the church present this sacrament as the second plank of salvation after the shipwreck which is lost in my sin and the grace that is lost. Raised up from sin, 1459 says, the sinner must recover his spiritual health by doing something more to make amends for his sin. He must make satisfaction for or expiate his sin. I got to get it off my account. This satisfaction is called penance. Since Christ entrusted to his apostles the ministry of reconciliation, bishops now, who are their successors, they are the apostles in our generation, and the priests and the bishops, they continue to exercise this ministry. Indeed, bishops and priests, by virtue of their sacrament of holy orders, they become ordained now, have the power to forgive all sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, I know that part of what started the Reformation was this thing on indulgences. I'm glad they don't believe in that anymore. 1471, of course they do. The doctrine and practice of indulgences. That means I give you something, I do something, and you, the priest, can tell me to do something, not just for myself, but for the dead that I know that have departed, and they are called the, the faithful who have died. In other words, they were believing in Christ, but now they're in a place called purgatory. The doctrine and practice of indulgences in the church is closely linked to the effects of the sacrament of penance. An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishments that are due sin. When you sin, you should be punished, and you've got to deal with that under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which as the minister of redemption dispenses and applies with authority the treasures of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. Christ has died. There's a treasury of grace. That grace now is given when the priests allow you through penance to get it. And if you want to do it for someone else, it's called an indulgence. And if you go and do that, you make this transaction with a priest, you can make a pilgrimage, you can do good works, you can pray so many prayers, you can do something now to affect the good of people that have passed on. 
An indulgence can be partial. It can be plenary, 1471 says, as it removes either part or, or the whole of temporal punishment due to sin. The faithful can gain indulgences for themselves or they can apply them to the dead. This is 1994, this was written. An indulgence obtained by the church who, by virtue of the power of binding and loosing, so the church has the power to do this, intervenes in favor of individual Christians and opens for them the treasury of the merits of Christ to obtain from the Father mercies, the mercies of the remission or the forgiveness of temporal punishments due their sin. Since the faithful departed, 1479, are now purified, or now being purified in purgatory, are also members of the same communion of saints. One may one way we can help them is to obtain an indulgence for them so that the temporal punishments due for their sins may be remitted. This is starting to sound like the California Penal Code. And you know why? Because we had a conglomeration of the power and authority of the state and the church. And when that happened, they said, we can make the rules here, we're in charge. And when that happened, they said, I know the Bible tells you some things, but the church has got to tell you some things. They've done some things. Put those three together and we'll tell you how to get right with God. Romans chapter four, verse three, for what does scripture say? That'd be a good thing for us to check according to the apostle Paul. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I want to read that after reading all that stuff that you were getting bored hearing me read because I want you to see the difference and the clarity and the simplicity of that statement over and against everything called indulgences, penance, baptism, holy orders, Eucharist, right there. Abraham believed God. He trusted God and God counted to him righteousness. I'm gonna credit you with righteousness. Verse four, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, they're due. If you work and earn it, whether through penance, an indulgence, a payment, a good work, well then of course it's due you, but that's not the way it works. To the one who does not work, he's not trying to make some kind of arrangement with God, I do this and you do that, but believes in him who justifies, who makes right before God the ungodly, his faith, just trusting in that, is counted to him as righteousness. And again, before you talk to me afterwards and go, ah, you said all that stuff, you're throwing the Catholics under the bus, they don't believe all that. Hey, if your friend is a Catholic and they don't believe that, they're a bad Catholic. And I'm all for them, by the way, right? I'd much rather you be a bad Catholic than a good Catholic because this is what a good Catholic believes. So I understand that you may say, well, Granny was a Catholic and she didn't believe any of that. Well, I don't know that you really know what she believes because if she was a good Catholic, these are the things they teach. And the difference in the scripture is you trust in God, he credits you with righteousness. Not only that, verses six through eight. Your sin should be the cause of rejoicing when you trust in him and he counts your sin as forgiven. I got a problem, I don't measure up. God doesn't help me measure up. He says, Mike, everything you've ever done that you think is righteous, we're going to throw that out. Paul calls it scubalon. Scubalon. Philippians 3, which is the Greek word for poo-poo. All my good works, I move those aside as though it were excrement. And now I'm going to have Christ's righteousness counted to me. And all the things I did to try to measure up, I'm going to say they don't work with God. I'm going to be credited with the righteousness of Christ because he is God himself in perfect how does that work? Penance, indulgences, prayers, Hail Mary, rosary. No, none of that. You trust him. And he goes, bam. Well, you got to have time to kind of do some things. 
thief on the cross, you don't think that that was a strategic, theological, divinely appointed thing to teach people for all time. If you were to trust in Christ, even if it were your last moment, you could be the worst insurrectionist, the rebellious person. And if you were to put your trust in Christ right there, Jesus can say to you, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Only people that measure up get to go to paradise. How did he measure up so fast? God really had to lift him up. I know he doesn't lift him up at all. He takes all of his life and says, we're going to forget about that. We're going to take all of my righteousness and apply it to you and all of your sin. It's going to be now punished in me. God's going to treat me as though I were you and all of that justice will be dispensed and you will be considered righteous. Forgiveness is entirely gifted. Your forgiveness is gifted to you. It is gifted to you when you trust in Christ. Now, I must say this because some of you grew up in good Protestant churches and you say, well, that's it. That's what I believe. You believe in Christ, you get forgiven. All that gobbledygook, you say, ah, I, I just believe what you said it there at the end. Be careful. There's a lot of people that say, I have faith, I believe, and they think they're fine with God when that belief is no more than the kind of belief James talked about, which is a kind of belief that demons have. If you say, I believe the facts of what you just said, then you qualify to be a demon, right? That's all you got. To say, I believe all that, I believe that, I believe Jesus died, I believe Jesus died for me. You can think that all you want. It's not about you believing the facts, See, real faith is a penitent faith. A penitent faith that says, I know I am going to drown here at the tribunal of God. The only way for me to make it is to have something that's going to be buoyant when this ship called life goes down. There's a lifeboat, I've got to step into it. And I recognize in humility, I deserve to drown. And I'm going to step in. Luke 18, a Pharisee and a tax collector go up to the temple. And they go to pray, and you know the story. The Pharisee was like, I'm so glad I'm not like him and all these other bad people. Lateral comparisons. The tax collector beats his chest and says, I can't even look up to God. I'm an unworthy sinner. And then Christ says, guess which one went home measuring up? Justified. The one who in his penitence said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you've never had that kind of encounter with God, if you think you grew up in church, I checked the box, I believe Jesus is the son of God, I believe Jesus died for me, I said some prayer, I walked some mile, I must be okay because I believe it. And you've never had that penitent experience of saying, I deserve to be punished before the holy God of the universe that made me. I've got to transfer my trust. I'm going to say with that man, that tax collector, have mercy on me, a sinner. I know a lot of people that say they believe in God. They think they have the faith that's talked about and celebrated in Romans 4, but they've never had a thought ever about themselves not measuring up. Matter of fact, they think they measure up because they're so smart to figure out to trust in Christ. It's got to be a faith that trusts. A faith that trusts is a faith that says, I trust what he did. I'm not trusting in an addition to my resume. And let me put it this way. When it comes to that kind of trust, it's a trust, according to James, that is always going to work. And here's why it works. It works because I am saying, God, I want to be justified. I want to measure up. I want to be acceptable. I'm a sinner. I know I deserve punishment, but I want to measure up. I want you. And when that happens, the Bible says he invades our life. The third person of the triune God says, I'm now going to live within you, whatever that means. I'm now going to be so much a part of who you are. It's like I'm there with you, inside of you. 
And when that happens, the Bible says, to put it in Jeremiah 31 terms, my heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh and the spirit now within me, the new spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, now moves me to keep his rules. That's why you can look at a life that's really converted and say, he's not like the old him. That's a transformative faith that is not saying, I now have become righteous because of my faith and therefore God accepts me because I'm righteous. No. It's a righteousness that is imputed. It is credited to you. Just like if you were to have me go to your bank with your routing number and your account number and say, I'm putting a billion dollars in your account. At the moment I do that, you're completely rich. And at the moment you trust in Christ, you get all of that. Now what happens is you should live. If I give you a billion dollars in your account tonight, when you give me your routing number and your account number, I hope you'll live very thankfully and deferentially toward me. I would think you would do that. Would you not smile at me if you would be very kind to me if I gave you a billion dollars? Christ has now said, you're sinking, you're dying, you deserve punishment. I'm now going to send my son to die in your stead and I'll give it all to you right now. Trust me as a penitent sinner and knowing what you deserve. And, and you know what happens? My heart now says, I, I wanna love God. I wanna serve God. I wanna do what he says. Won't do it perfectly. If you claim you don't have sin, you're a liar. The truth's not in you. But that's James, or that's 1 John 1. 1 John 3 says, but my life will be in a trajectory that's different than it was before. I cannot live in love with this person and not keep his commandments. Saving faith. The passage that he quotes here is the Old Testament passage, the Psalm 32. I mentioned that about the Psalm of David saying, blessed are the ones whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed in Hebrew, the word Asher, one of the names of the 12 tribes. Asher means happy, which is not just this profound inner joy. It's really an exuberant kind of, of profound happiness that something that was really horrible now is diverted and, and averted, I should say, and I now I, I can celebrate safety. If I said to you, there's some teenagers here that got taken hostage and, and they've been kept by these horrible people that are now going to torture them and they've threatened to kill them and we all as a church got together and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we said, oh God, release them, please help them. And you sent your pastors to their headquarters and they did all this hard work to release them. And then after three weeks in captivity, they come out. And, and they're now, all that is averted. I think you'd have a celebration. You'd be joyful. You'd be excited. You'd be happy. You'd be blessed. You'd have that sense of profound joy. I was reading Esther this morning. And in Esther, she diverts the destruction of the Jews. And here's some of the words in the passage. They had joy and gladness, feasting and celebrating. I'll bet if you had three teenagers in your program here that got released from three weeks of captivity by, by bloodthirsty thugs. You'd have a party, you'd have a feast, you'd celebrate. But if I said to you, hey, three teenagers got saved this summer, I just wonder how you'd respond. Is this even real to you? See? The Bible says, man, don't fear the one who can kill the body. You ought to fear the one who can kill the body and then cast your soul into hell. That's the holy, righteous God, and we should feel that fear. But when he forgives us, it doesn't mean we become gleeful. It's not like now Jesus is my homeboy, you understand. Psalm 130, verse four, with you, Lord, there is forgiveness. And because of that, you are feared. I fear him when I start to understand my sin and I think he's going to be my judge. And when he becomes my savior, guess what happens? It's a different kind of fear, but I stand in great respect of the one who should have cast me into outer darkness, but instead says, instead says I'm accepting you, I, I forgive you. I know the middle of this was an endurance test for you to hear all that stuff from the catechism of the Catholic Church. 
But I hope that little exercise, that rhetorical exercise, if not an intellectual exercise, has helped you to see how blessed we are to have a gospel that is so simple, it's so profound, and that's why we sit here today in the freedom of the sole authority of Scripture saying, if you trust me, I'll forgive you. There's a really disturbing trend down in uh, South Orange County where I live, and that is these uh, young teenage and preteen girls are adopting rats. Does that happen up here? I would hope not. It's really disturbing. I, I see families adopting these rats. They put a little collars on them. They shampoo them. They get them their shots. These dads spend good hard-earned money and they go and they buy these rats and their daughters sit around in front of the Disney Channel and they play with them and caress them and, you know, canoodle with them in front of the... T and I think you guys... I spend a lot of money to kill rats in my yard, right? I had them in my attic. I want to destroy them. And you know, when I do and I go out and try to exterminate the rats in my yard or in my attic, my neighbors, not a single neighbor has ever tried to turn me in for that. Try and take out a, a disease-infested vermin. I, they're like, oh yeah, have at it, man. And yet here are people taking those same creatures, getting them vaccinated, giving them vitamins, shampooing their hair, putting collars and bows and weird things and standing there while they talk to me and I visit them in their house with the big tail hanging out. I'm like, what are you doing? You guys are crazy. I wonder, by the way, the holy angels, Michael, Gabriel, the whole slew of these seraphim, I just wonder what they think when they see you and I, lustful thoughts, greedy, gossip, sinners, so rejectable from the position of a holy God. They view it from heaven's perspective, and then you sit here, put your trust in him, and God takes you, he washes you, he cleanses you, he justifies you, and he says, these are my children, and I've given my own son for their lives. I just wonder how bizarre and freaked out the angels are thinking, why God would you ever do that? Because I guarantee you this, all of heaven wouldn't, wouldn't lose a, week, a wink of sleep if they did sleep if he destroyed all of us. You understand that, right? We are sinners before God. We're all sinners. Even Abraham, even that person we started with that you thought is the most holy person I know. We shouldn't really be amazed that people are going to hell. We should be amazed and overwhelmed that because of faith alone, God would take you and I and consider and count us righteous before him. There's no religious gobbledygook about it. There's no hierarchy. There's no guy in a funny hat that's going to make a decision. It's going to matter anything between you and God. This is an issue he has settled when Christ came and he said, you trust me and I'll forgive you. Salvation by faith alone. I hope you understand how distinctive this is in a world that wants to earn their way into God's favor. That's something worth celebrating. I'll bet there'll be people in this church real soon that get this right with the living God and you ought to celebrate the angels in heaven celebrate. I'm sure they scratch their head while they do. We ought to celebrate. Feast, joy, happiness when one sinner repents. I hope for a lot more of that in your church and in mine. Let's pray. God, help us to understand what it means to look at the simplicity of Romans chapter four against the backdrop of all that was protested against 500 years ago. And obviously we always think it starts with Luther in 1517, but there's a lot of people that stood up for what was right. A lot of people, even as the church was uh, increasingly consolidating their power that objected all the way along the way. Of course, there were a lot of justified Christians in the process, but when it came to what needed to happen in the 16th century, the most important thing that needed to be recovered was how one gets right with God. 
Is Christ going to assist us as the church brokers how we get the assistance and the grace and the treasury and merits of Christ? Or is this between me and God, my trust in a penitent way before the God who says you're a sinner, but if you would just trust me, I will cancel your sin and I will make you righteous. I'll consider you righteous first. And then even in your life, you'll see a change. But what makes us right is not that change. What makes us right is the righteous and finished work of Christ. Thank you so much for that imputation, that crediting, that logizomai, that great Greek word that you have accounted us righteous at the moment of our genuine penitent trust in you. Let us get excited about the simplicity of the gospel and preach it often and tell our friends and coworkers and family members about it. And every time we hear someone repenting and putting their trust in your son, may we celebrate it in a way that is profound, that recognizes and honors the magnitude of what it means to be forgiven. God, we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.